Hello, everyone, and welcome back. How's your week going? I hope everyone is having a lovely one. Um, everybody, it's funny doing these. Uh, these just feel quiet. These feel... I don't know. I don't. I don't feel like there's a there's a big bang on the way. You know what I mean. Um, however, I will say, we have got a uh, we've got an interesting series coming up for sure. Um, anyone who doesn't know, we are going to be launching into the Hunger Games, uh, beginning uh, probably January. Uh, you know, February at the very latest, like early February. Um, but uh, yeah, on Thursdays in 2022, we are going to be we're going to be heading from uh the the modern day off into the future off we go into the wild blue yonder and by the wild blue yonder i mean the sort of like orange on black uh logos and uh terrible dystopia of the hunger games i hope you'll enjoy it i am really looking forward to it i'm really looking forward to the art that there is to be found about it um i think a lot of the uh you know there's there's going to be a lot of interesting post-apocalyptic art and just general sci-fi stuff that we can we can throw on here i'm really looking forward to this i think it's gonna be a lot of fun uh z laws hello monkey how are you and uh fabriella hello hi folks how's everybody doing today oh we got a new one <laughs> hi folks come on in let me just pour you up a tall glass of lemonade have a have a seat on the sofa there. Don't mind the seat cover. It's just so we can avoid spills. Got a lot of spills. You don't want to try to get lemonade out of a couch. What have y'all been doing this week? I can sort of, uh, I feel like my, sort of where I'm at is on display. <laughs> pretty clean, pretty, pretty clear window into where I'm at. Jessica, hello. How are you? Um, Monkey says, I rewatched the first Hunger Games movie today. It was better than I remember. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, you know, a lot of these things don't hold up. And I will say, here's here's my thoughts on the movies for uh, Hunger Games. I never did think that they were, like, excellent, excellent, fantastic movies. But at the same time, like, they, I, I thought, I thought they got a better start than, like, the Harry Potter movies. I did not love the first ones now remember i didn't catch up with those until i was older but you know it's uh it's just one of those things i i feel like the hunger games movies i i never was like oh holy crap these are like these are these are transcendent but i think they do hold up better than some they definitely hold up um but uh yeah i'm glad to hear it monkey uh, I think, you know, I'm gonna, I think we're gonna, we, we have agreed, I think, between all of us not to do a full-on watch party for the Percy Jackson movies. Maybe once the show comes out, we can figure out what that's all about. But, um, for the Hunger Games movies, I thought they did a pretty good job, and so I would not mind jumping in there and, uh, taking a look at those. I don't know how y'all feel about that, but I'd be into it. I'd be into it. Yeah, they weren't bad movies. Um, and, uh... You know, Jennifer Lawrence, like, she does a good job. She does a really pretty good job. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, it's they're, they're interesting. They're interesting, and I like them. So, uh, I'm really looking forward to the books. I uh, certainly wouldn't mind taking another look at the movies. Uh, Rollett says, <laughs> BJO movie's not worth it. We'll just talk about how not related to the books they are. 
I got you. I got you, Rollet. Yeah, I don't I don't need to see the Percy Jackson. I I I watched I think some of the first one. Uh honestly, the trailers were kind of enough for me to be like, okay, I see where this is headed. I see where they've gone with this. I see exactly where this is going. <laughs> I see I see the future. I see how this path ends. Should we walk it? The peril into which we tread <laughs> has no bounds. Z-Laws says, I used to think that PJ movie is so good till I read the book. <laughs> all right. All right. We don't need to talk about the movie anymore. I'm not going to I'm not going to put y'all through that. So uh, instead, let's talk about where we're at right now. It's really funny because I've never lived in New York. I've never, uh, you know, we haven't even spent that much time there. Like being from the Midwest, I've spent a decent bit of time in Chicago. Um and uh, obviously, I'm in Southern California now, so I, I get to LA every once in a while. Um, uh, but yeah, New York is a big city, and I would love to spend like two months in New York City. I think that's kind of where I would cap out. I would love to spend like two months there working on a project of some sort, uh, but I don't know that I would want to live there longer term than that if I can avoid it. Um which shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be too hard. I should be able to avoid that um, unless we do end up with some sort of post-apocalyptic scenario, which, look, this isn't going to mean anything to anybody except for the narrow few of you who are super into our tabletop RPG pursuits. But I did have kind of a... I had a fun idea. I've been wanting to... Uh, back when I was religious, um, uh, when I used to be religious, I read a series called uh, Left Behind, which... All in all, um, I should say I've not reread it. My memory of it was that it was very, very interesting and a really interesting sort of like uh, globe-trotting, um, geopolitical kind of uh, look at what the end times would look like. Of course, through a very um, Judeo-Christian lens in this instance, but, you know, I kind of like... Uh, there's a huge difference between that and something like, uh, you know, 2012 or something, where the end of the world is like... The world ends in the course of, like... 48 hours, you know, uh, lots of zombie movies, whatever world ends in the course of like 72 hours or whatever. I like this like world ends over the course of 10 years kind of thing. Uh, I, I like that was a really interesting way to look at it. And so I've had my own idea for uh, a campaign. It takes a very, very different tack as to why the world is ending. But I, I would really love to give that a shot. Of course, we have got too many other things that are loaded up first into our Side cannons! Too many other things that we gotta fire off first. We have got our um, our world building, which is just going beautifully. We had two really cool ideas uh, yesterday, because Wednesdays are the days when we do that. Um, those are at noon Pacific time, uh, as opposed to 4 Pacific time, like these are here. Um, but... That has been just a lot of fun. We're doing a lot of discussion about, uh, you know, just kind of how to best load people into that world, how to make that wiki really easy to traverse. And I think we're making excellent progress. Um, but uh, it's a really cool world. If any of y'all are familiar with like the Tower of Babel, uh, it's essentially the answer to the question, what if the Tower of Babel had kind of gone off without a hitch? What would the world look like? Um, and uh, that's what we're exploring on Wednesdays. Um, and then, of course, like I've also got my I'm, I'm trying to adapt Blades in the Dark for um, uh, mystery solving campaigns. Um, you know, sort of like crime and conspiracy or, you know, historical uh, mysteries like uh, 
Lost City of Atlantis or Treasure Planet, those kind of things. Um, or even Call of Cthulhu, Lovecraftian kind of adventures. Um, and then I've also got some ideas. I'm, I'm just sort of like, right now they're just uh, notes in a spreadsheet. Um, but uh, I've also got some ideas for adopting that system for some Harry Potter sorts of adventures. Some some <laughs> witchcraft and wizardry nonsense. Some nonsense. So... There's a lot. There's a lot on the plate already, but I've got my note now. It's safely tucked away into the rest of my notes for you know possible future campaigns. Who knows if, when, at all, it could ever become a thing? But it's certainly fun to think about. Um, I think it would start. I'm I'm really into an anime called Space Brothers. <laughs> it's not. I don't think I've ever said it out loud. Um, but no, it's this. Uh, it's an anime called Space Brothers, and. Um, it's fantastic because it's not a lot of like it doesn't delve so hard into like the high drama of like 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 soap opera drama, um, and then it also you know isn't like uh, it, it doesn't delve into the like strange uh, way way over the top fantasy stuff. Like it's essentially just about two brothers from Japan who are uh, one of them gets into the space program and uh, another one is sort of like trying to, the older one is is uh, sort of late to the party and he tries to follow into the footsteps of the younger one and so it's I mean a really long running one too uh, but it's about sort of their training and getting to their first mission so uh, very cool frankly um, and uh, worth a look if you like the if you wanted to like give anime a shot but you don't you don't find yourself super into like the um, uh, the super like super high fantasy stuff. This is very low fantasy. It's like they spend a lot of time uh, on. <laughs> they spend most of the series is like about the training that they go through. Um, but it's cool. It's a lot of fun. Uh, let's see. Monkey says, "I want to taste New York." Yeah, I know what you mean. Like, yeah, I just want to. I want a good taste of it. And I feel like two or three months would be the amount of time it would take for me to like really take a bite out of New York City. Um, again, I don't want to or need to live there. And so I'm not talking about like, I feel like I'm not, I'm not saying in three months, I feel like I could know New York City. I just feel like I would know what I want to know. <laughs> you know, like, like hanging out with Dwayne Johnson or, um, or Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? There are people who like, I would love to spend time with, just because it would be interesting and fun and cool, but I also don't think I would ever become, like, best friends with them. Same thing with New York City. New York City <laughs> would not be my best friend. Not at all. Um. <laughs> uh, Rollet says, if you've got a chance to spend a long time in New York City, it's definitely worth it. And by a long time, I mean, like, three to six months. It will fly by, says Rollet. I believe that. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm, there's there's a lot to see, but yeah, between uh, between this, you know, what we've been seeing here as we start to take a look around New York, and you know, getting into like one of the first lines here is about the Williamsburg Bridge. You know, like mentioning actual landmarks, um, uh, and then Dimension Twenty has the Unsleeping City campaign, which has a ton about like you know different boroughs and and uh, you know specific street corners and and landmarks. Um, they spend a lot of time talking to uh, one of the statues in the fountain, um, and so yeah, there's 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 a lot to explore there. Um, Monkey says all my siblings have visited NYC. I would hate to end the tradition. Yeah, get out there, get out there, Monkey. At some point, just for a little bit. Uh, Dolly says, new, new, 
<laughs> New York City is an interesting experience. Lots of walking and using public transit to get places. Yeah. Yeah, we, we spent a little bit of time doing that. Um, I've had a couple of flights that, that went out of New York, and we visited there just to visit there, um, I think, once, and then spent like a weekend there at one point. Yeah, it's an interesting spot. It's interesting. I just want I just want a hammock and cheese. Okay, folks. Hey, HUD, I see you with your Prime subscription, and I thank you very, very much. I appreciate you. Uh, thank you for jumping in here. Um, and uh, Moonlight, hello. How do you do? Uh, everybody, I hope you're having a wonderful week. Uh, do you want to talk about some of this reading? Today is not a super, super long one. Um, it's definitely not a short one, but, you know, we're not pushing it like we have uh, last week. Uh, HUD said, I went on a work trip. It helped to have a local showing us around. Yeah, probably. It, the Having a local to show you, it's, it's funny because then you get a really specific view, like through the life of one person. Um, but it also, like, definitely helps with some of the tourist stuff because they'll have the best ways to get around, when not to use certain types of transportation, when to use them. Yeah, I feel you, HUD. All right. Now, last week, uh, let's see. Last week was chapters. I was on my I was on my uh, sound bites page, but I don't think there are any that are going to be a good fit for tonight. Um, let's see. Eight, nine, and ten last week. So chapters eight, nine, and ten. I take the worst bath ever. Two snakes save my life, and I buy some new friends. Uh, in essence. Last week was the final moments before the battle sort of began. Um, two snakes, uh, excuse me, I take the worst bath ever. Um, this is the the culmination of Nico's plan. Nico D'Angelo, he's had this plan for a while. His intent has uh, not been clear to us over time as we have been trying to follow Percy and uh, try to understand what it was Nico actually asked him to try. We know that Percy agreed to it, but we never actually find out what until the very moment that it happens. They end up down in the underworld, and Percy ends up at the edge of the River Styx. It turns out the plan here is to perform the same kind of ritual as Achilles and take on something that we eventually know to be called the Achilles Curse, or Achilles' Curse. Um, Percy dives down into the River Styx and uh, has to focus on a point, a point that will remain mortal. Um, this is in order to prevent him from just sort of like dematerializing, essentially. Um, in order for Percy to stay human, he needs this weak point. But for the rest of him, if any of y'all know the story of Achilles, you will know that uh, he is now essentially invulnerable. He does not have any invulnerabilities except for this one spot. Uh, and he has chosen this spot on his lower back. Um, but it's this one little point where he is still mortal, still sort of human. And the rest of him is uh, totally unharmable. He's protected. They head back up to the surface level. Um, two snakes save my life. They meet with Hermes because they take a trip up to Olympus. And at Olympus, they intend to convince Zeus that the real threat is not, uh, you know, it's not the Princess Andromeda, which got blown up at sea. It's not the underwater battles that uh, Poseidon is handling. It's not even the Titan Typhon, who's charging through the Midwest toward New York City right now. No, the real threat uh, is, using that, is using Typhon as a distraction. The true threat is Kronos and his armies invading Olympus right now through New York City. But 
when they arrive at Olympus to try and have this conversation, Zeus is nowhere to be seen. In fact, the entire place is pretty empty. The gods have sent a messenger back to Olympus. It's Hermes, uh, of course, being the god of messengers, it seemed like it would fall on him. And they have a conversation where essentially Hermes says they're not going to be getting any help. They're going to have to defend New York City for themselves. Not only that, but he has a an angry moment, one that we didn't expect because we don't think we've seen um, Hermes angry before. And in this moment, he sort of reveals that Annabeth may have had some sort of chance to save Luke. At the very least, he thinks she did, and he thinks she blew it, and so he is he's angry. But at the end of all this, Percy gets... Not the answer that he was hoping for, but the answer that he needed in order to proceed as the leader, which is that they're going to have to defend New York City all on their own. Now, New York City has all been put to sleep. Uh, this seems to be the efforts of Morpheus, uh, sort of god of dreams, god of sleep, I don't remember which, um, but has put the entire city of mortals to sleep, and so it is just a very, very quiet city now. Um, and they are... Uh, 40 demigods trying to defend the entirety of it, uh, at least the entirety of Manhattan, against the onslaught of the coming titans and those who have joined them. I think that's our summary. Um, Percy has sent out different, uh, uh, different houses, different cabins, essentially, to defend specific bridges and pathways into Manhattan, um, and uh, they've had their first little skirmish in the distance as Percy uh, purchases, using the sand dollar given to him by his father, Poseidon, um, he purchases some help from the two rivers of New York, uh, the East River and the, and the, uh, yeah, it's the, um, you know, the one. It's, uh, you know, it's the, the one that everybody knows, uh, the East River and... Um, uh, you know, it's the, uh, let's see, it is definitely uh, the Hudson River. <laughs> oh, man, sorry for the panic attack, everybody. Uh, thank you, Rolet. I appreciate you. Um, yes, and I'm sure I'm going to get a few more of those in there as the, <laughs> as the delay catches up. Hudson River and East River. Um, but uh, we don't see that happen. That sort of happens off in the distance. But at the very end of this chapter, um, they get news there's another army marching across the Williamsburg Bridge. The Apollo cabin needs help, and the monster leading the enemy is the Minotaur. There it is. As we head into Chapter 11, that's where we're at. Uh, as per usual, folks, if you've got anything you would like to discuss, I want you to put it in chat. Um, I want to see questions. I want to see points of confusion. I want to see your guesses. I want to see uh, things that surprise you. I want to know what you're thinking about, because uh, I'd love to talk about them once the chapter's over. Uh, once we are done, we will revisit the chat, and I would love to see what you've got to say. As per usual, I'm going to keep it kind of uh, keep it kind of focused on the reading while the chapter's going, but I promise I will come back to chat once we're done with the chapter. Everybody, I thank you very much for being here with me. Um, I love hanging out with y'all. Uh, <laughs> it's been a fun week. It's nice to sort of uh, feel present again. And uh, yeah, 
We had a good Tuesday. We're enjoying Alice in Wonderland on Tuesdays. Uh, I'm feeling great about the groundwork we're laying for the realm of Recetus on uh, the realms of Recetus over on Sat or on uh, Wednesdays, and uh, of course here on Thursdays. Uh, it's interesting to be looking at the end of uh, a series, and you know, looking at the four-year anniversary of Sidecar Stories, marking the beginning of a third Flying Sidecar series. The Hunger Games. I'm super excited, and uh, also, patrons, uh, it looks like some of that merch is rolling in, so I'm super excited. Thank you all so much for uh, for jumping in on that. Um, everyone who has become a patron, whether it's because of the merch or just because uh, you wanted to, and the merch is incidental, hey, I love y'all. It is great to see that out in the world, um, and thank you very, very much to Holly Rose for uh, the Chibi Sam art that is on most of it. I love y'all. Here we go. Chapter 11. We break a bridge. Fortunately, Blackjack was on duty. I did my best taxicab whistle, and within a few minutes, two dark circles shaped... <laughs> Getting off to a great start. I did my best taxicab whistle, and within a few minutes, two dark shapes circled out of the sky. They looked like hawks at first, but as they descended, I could make out the long, galloping legs of Pegasi. Hey, yo, boss! Blackjack landed at a trot, his friend Pork Pie right behind him. When I thought those wind gods were gonna knock us to Pennsylvania till we said that we were with you. Yeah, thanks for coming. I told him. Hey, why do Pegasi gallop as they fly, anyway? Blackjack whinnied. Why do humans swing their arms when they walk? I don't know, boss. It just feels right. Where to? We need to get to the Williamsburg Bridge, I said. Blackjack lowered his neck. You're doing right, boss. We flew over it on the way here and it don't look too good. Hop on! On the way to the bridge, a knot formed in the pit of my stomach. The Minotaur was one of the first monsters I'd ever defeated. Four years ago, he'd nearly killed my mother on Half-Blood Hill. I still had nightmares about that. I'd been hoping he would stay dead for a few centuries, but I should have known my luck wouldn't hold. We saw the battle before we were close enough to make out individual fighters. It was well after midnight now, but the bridge blazed with light. Cars were burning. Arcs of fire streamed in both directions as flaming arrows and spears sailed through the air. We came in for a low pass, and I saw Apollo campers retreating. They would hide behind cars and snipe at the approaching enemy, setting off explosive arrows and dropping caltrops in the road, building fiery barricades wherever they could, dragging sleeping taxi drivers out of their cars to keep them from harm's way. But the enemy kept advancing. An entire phalanx of Dracane marched in the lead, and their shields locked together, spear tips bristling over the top. An occasional arrow would connect with their snaky trunks, or a neck, or a chink in the armor, but the unlucky snake woman would dis and the unlucky snake woman would disintegrate. But most of the Apollo arrows glanced harmlessly off the shield wall. About a hundred more monsters marched behind them. Hellhounds leapt ahead of the line from time to time. Most were destroyed with arrows, but one got a hold of an Apollo capper and dragged him away. I didn't see what happened next. I didn't want to know. 
There, Annabeth called from the back of her pegasus. Sure enough, in the middle of the invading legion was old Beefhead himself. The last time I'd seen the Minotaur, he'd been wearing nothing but his tidy whities I didn't know why. Maybe he'd been shaken out of bed to chase me. This time, he was prepared for battle. From the waist down, he wore standard Greek battle gear, a kilt-like apron of leather and metal flaps, bronze greaves covering his legs, and tightly wrapped leather sandals. His top was all bull, hair and hide and muscle leading to a head so large he would have toppled over just from the weight of his horns. He seemed larger than I'd seen him the last time. Ten feet tall, at least. A double-handed axe was strapped to his back, but he was too impatient to use it. As soon as he saw me circling overhead, or sniffed me, more likely, since his eyesight was bad, he bellowed and picked up a white limousine. Blackjack! Dive! I yelled. What? The Pegasus asked. There's no way! Holy horse feed! We were at least 200 feet up, but the limo came sailing toward us, flipping fender over fender like a two-ton boomerang. Annabeth and Pork Pie swerved madly to the left while Blackjack tucked in his wings and plunged. The limo sailed over my head, missing by maybe two inches. It cleared the suspension lines of the bridge and fell toward the East River. Monsters jeered and shouted, and the Minotaur picked up another car. Drop us behind the lines with the Apollo cabin, I told Blackjack. Stay in earshot, but get out of danger. I ain't gonna argue with that, boss. Blackjack swooped down behind an overturned school bus where a couple of campers were hiding. Annabeth and I leapt off as soon as our pegasi hooves touched the pavement. Then Blackjack and Pork Pie sailed into the night sky. Michael Yu ran right up to us. He was definitely the shortest commando I'd ever seen. He had a bandaged cut on his arm, his ferrety face was smeared with soot, and his quiver was almost empty. But he was smiling like he was having a great time. Hey, glad you could join us, he said. Where are the other reinforcements? For now, we're it, I said. Then we're dead, he said. You still have your flying chariot? Annabeth asked. No, Michael said. Left it at camp. I told Clarice she could have it, whatever, you know. Not worth fighting about anymore. But she said it was too late. We'd insulted her honor for the last time or some stupid thing. At least you tried, I said. Michael shrugged. Yeah, well, I called her some names when she said she wouldn't fight still. I doubt that helped. Here come the uglies. He drew an arrow and launched it toward the enemy. The arrow made a screaming sound as it flew. When it landed, it unleashed a blast like a power cord on an electric guitar magnified through the world's largest speakers. The nearest cars exploded. Monsters dropped their weapons and clasped their ears in pain. Some ran. Others disintegrated on the spot. Others disintegrated on the spot. That was my last sonic arrow, Michael said. A gift from your dad? I asked. Got a music? Michael grinned wickedly. Loud music can be bad for you. Unfortunately, it doesn't always kill. Sure enough, more monsters were regrouping, shaking off their confusion. We have to fall back, Michael said. I've got Kayla and Austin setting up traps further down the bridge. No, I said. Bring your campers forward to this position and wait for my signal. We're going to drive the enemy back to Brooklyn. Michael laughed. <laughs> How do you plan on that? I drew my sword. 
Percy, Annabeth said, let me come with you. It's too dangerous, I said. Besides, I need you to help Michael coordinate the defensive line. I'll distract the monsters. You group up here. Move the sleeping mortals out of the way, then you can start picking off monsters while I keep them focused on me. If anybody at all can do it, you can. Michael snorted. Thanks a lot. I kept my eyes on Annabeth. She nodded reluctantly. All right, keep moving. Before I could lose my courage, I said, Don't I get a kiss for luck? It's kind of a tradition, right? I figured she would punch me. Instead, she drew her knife and stared at the enemy marching toward us. Come back alive, seaweed brain. Then we'll see. I figured it was the best offer I would get. So I stepped out from behind the school bus. I walked up the bridge in plain sight, straight toward the enemy. When the monster saw me, his eyes burned with hate. He bellowed, a sound that was somewhere between a yell, a moo, and a really loud belch. Hey, beef boy! I shouted back. Didn't I kill you already? He pounded his fist into the hood of Alexis, and it crumpled like aluminum foil. A few dracane threw flaming javelins at me. I knocked them aside. A hellhound lunged and I sidestepped. I should have stabbed it, but I hesitated. This is not Mrs. O'Leary, I reminded myself. This is an untamed monster. It'll kill me and all my friends. It pounced again. This time I brought Rip tied up in a deadly arc. The hellhound disintegrated into dust and fur. More monsters surged forward. Snakes and giants and telekines. But the minotaur roared at them and they backed off. Just one-on-one, I called. Just like old times? The Minotaur's nostrils quivered. He seriously needed to keep a pack of aloe vera Kleenex in his armor pocket because his nose was wet and red and pretty gross. He unstrapped his axe and swung it around. It was beautiful in a harsh, I'm-gonna-gut-you-like-a-fish kind of way. Each of its twin blades were shaped like an omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Maybe that was because the axe would be the last thing his victims ever saw. The shaft of each was about the same height as the minotaur, bronze wrapped in leather. Tied around the base of each blade were lots of bead necklaces. I realized they were Camp Half-Blood beads, necklaces taken from defeated demigods. I was so mad I imagined my eyes glowing just like the minotaurs. I raised my sword The monster army cheered for the Minotaur, but the sound died when I dodged the first swing and sliced his axe in half, right between the handholds. He grunted. I spun and kicked him in the snout. He staggered backward, trying to regain his footing, and then lowered his head to charge. He never got the chance. My sword flashed, slicing off one horn, then the other. He tried to grab me. I rolled away, picking up half of his broken axe. The other monsters backed up in stunned silence, making a circle around us. The Minotaur bellowed in rage. He was never very smart to begin with, but now his anger made him reckless. He charged at me, and I ran for the edge of the bridge, breaking through a line of Dracane. The Minotaur must have smelled victory. He thought I was trying to get away. His minions cheered. At the edge of the bridge, I turned and braced the axe against the railing to receive his charge. The Minotaur didn't even slow down. 
He looked down in surprise as the axe handle sprouted from his breastplate. Thanks for playing, I told him. I lifted him by his legs and tossed him over the edge of the bridge. Even as he fell, he was disintegrating, turning back into dust, his essence returning to Tartarus. I turned toward his enemy. I turned toward his army. It was now roughly 199 to 1. I did the natural thing. I charged them. You're going to ask how the invincible thing worked, if I magically dodged every weapon, or if the weapons hit me and just didn't harm me. Honestly, I don't remember. All I knew was that I wasn't going to let these monsters invade my hometown. I sliced through armor like it was made of paper. Snake women exploded. Hellhounds melted to shadow. I slashed and stabbed and whirled, and I might have even laughed once or twice. A crazy laugh that scared me as much as it did my enemies. I was aware of the Apollo campers behind me, shooting flaming arrows, disrupting every attempt by enemy to rally. Finally, the monsters turned and fled. About twenty left alive out of two hundred. I followed with the Apollo campers at my heels. Yes, yelled Michael Yu. That's what I'm talking about. We drove them back toward the Brooklyn side of the bridge. The sky was growing pale in the east. I could see the toll stations ahead. Percy, Annabeth yelled, you've already routed them. Pull back. We're overextended. Some part of me knew she was right, but I was doing so well I wanted to destroy every last monster. Then I saw the crowd at the base of the bridge. The retreating monsters were running straight toward their reinforcements. It was a small group, maybe 30 or 40 demigods in battle armor, mounted on skeletal horses. One of them held a purple banner with the black scythe design. The lead horseman trotted forward. He took off his helm, and I recognized Kronos himself, his eyes like molten gold. Annabeth and the Apollo campers faltered. The monsters we'd been pursuing reached the Titan's line and were absorbed into the new force. Kronos gazed in our direction. He was a quarter mile away, but I swear I could see him smile. Now, I said, we pull back. The Titan Lord's men drew their swords and charged. The hooves of their skeletal horses thundered across the pavement. Our archers shot a volley, bringing down several of the enemy, but they just kept riding. Retreat, I told my friends. We'll hold them. I'll hold them. In a matter of seconds, they were on me. Michael and his archers tried to retreat, but Annabeth stayed right behind me, fighting with her knife and mirrored shield as we slowly backed across the bridge. Kronos' cavalry swirled around us, slashing and yelling insults. The Titan himself advanced leisurely, like he had all the time in the world. Being the Lord of Time, I guess he did. I tried to wound his men, not kill. That slowed me down, but these weren't monsters. There were demigods who had fallen under Kronos' spell. I couldn't see their faces under their battle helmets, but some of them probably had been my friends. I slashed the legs off their horses and made the skeletal mounts disintegrate. After the first few demigods took a spill, the rest figured out they'd better dismount and fight me on foot. Annabeth and I stayed shoulder to shoulder, facing opposite directions. A dark shape passed over me, and I dared to glance up. Blackjack and Porkpie were swooping in, 
kicking our enemies in the helmets and flying away like kamikaze pigeons. We almost made it to the middle of the bridge when something strange happened. I felt a chill down my spine. Like that old saying about someone walking on your grave. Behind me, Annabeth cried out in pain. Annabeth! I turned in time to see her fall, clutching her arm. A demigod with a bloody knife stood over her. In a flash, I understood what had happened. He'd been trying to stab me. Judging from the position of his blade, he would have taken me, maybe by sheer luck, in the small of my back, my only weak point. Annabeth had intercepted the knife with her own body. But why? She didn't know about my weak spot. Nobody did. I locked eyes with the enemy demigod. He wore an eye patch under his war helm. Ethan Nakamura, son of Nemesis. Somehow he'd survived the explosion on the Princess Andromeda. I slammed him in the face with my sword hilt so hard I dented his helm. Get back! I slashed at the air in a wide arc, driving the rest of the demigods away from Annabeth. Nobody touches her! Interesting, Chrono said. He towered above me on his skeletal horse, his scythe in one hand. He studied the scene with narrowed eyes, and I could sense... As if he could sense I could come close to death, the way a wolf can smell fear. Bravely fought, Percy Jackson, he said. But it's time to surrender, or the girl dies. Percy, don't... Annabeth groaned. Her shirt was soaked with blood. I had to get her out of here. Blackjack! I yelled. As fast as light, the Pegasus swooped down and clamped his teeth on the straps of Annabeth's armor. They soared away over the river just before the enemy could react. Chrono snarled. Mm, someday soon I'm going to make Pegasus soup. But in the meantime... He dismounted, his scythe glistening in the dawn light. I'll settle for another dead demigod. I met his first strike with Riptide. The impact shook the entire bridge, but I held my ground. Kronos' smile wavered. With a yell, I kicked his legs out from underneath him. His scythe skittered across the pavement. I stabbed downward, but he rolled aside and regained his footing. His scythe flew back into his hands. So... He studied me, looking mildly annoyed. You had the courage to visit the sticks. I had to pressure and... I had to pressure Luke in many ways to convince him. If only you had supplied my host body instead. But no matter. I'm still more powerful. I am a titan. He struck the bridge with the butt of his scythe, and a pure wave of force blasted me backward. Cars went careening. Demigods, even Luke's own men, were blown off the edge of the bridge. Suspension cords whipped around, and I skidded halfway back to Manhattan. I got unsteadily to my feet. The remaining Apollo campers had almost made it back to the end of the bridge, except for Michael Yu, who was perched on top of one of the suspension cables a few yards away from me, his last arrow knocked in his bow. Michael, go! I screamed. Percy, the bridge, he called. It's already weak. At first I didn't understand. Then I looked down and saw fissures in the pavement. Patches of the road were half melted from Greek fire. 
The bridge had taken a beating from Kronos' blast and the exploding arrows. Break it! Michael yelled. Use your powers! It was a desperate thought. No way it would work, but I stabbed Riptide into the bridge. The magic blade sank to its hilt in asphalt. Salt water shot from the crack like I'd hit a geyser. I pulled my blade and the fissure grew. The bridge shook and began to crumble. Chunks of house-sized pavement fell into the East River. Kronos' demigods cried out in alarm and scrambled backward. Some were knocked off their feet. Within a few seconds, a 50-foot chasm opened in the Williamsburg Bridge between Kronos and me. The vibrations died. Kronos' men crept to the edge and looked at the 130-foot drop into the river. I didn't feel safe, though. The suspension cables were still attached. The men could get across that way if they were brave enough. Or maybe Kronos had a magic way to span the gap. The Titan Lord studied the problem. He looked behind him at the rising sun and smiled across the chasm. He raised his scythe in a mock salute. Until this evening, Jackson. He mounted his horse, whirled around, and galloped back to Brooklyn, followed by his warriors. I turned to thank Michael Yu, but the words died in my throat. A hundred feet away, twenty feet away, a bow lay in the street. Its owner was nowhere to be seen. No! I searched the wreckage on my side of the bridge. I stared down at the river. Nothing. I yelled in anger and frustration. The sound carried forever in the morning stillness. I was about to whistle for Blackjack to help me search when my mom's phone rang. The LCD display said I had a call from Finkelstein and Associates. Probably a demigod calling me on a borrowed phone. I picked up, hoping for good news. Of course I was wrong. Percy... Selena Beauregard sounded like she had been crying. Plaza Hotel? You'd better come quickly and bring a healer from Apollo's cabin. It's... Annabeth. There we go. The end of our first chapter of the evening. Um, and frankly, I can do like the whole wrap up for this chapter really, really quickly. So if you didn't make it here in time to for the beginning of that chapter, do not worry. Um, basically, they arrive on uh, the Brooklyn Bridge, I believe, and uh, there are a bunch of monsters. Percy's able to beat most of them back until Kronos arrives. Kronos uh, and a group of about 40, um, I think he said about 40, uh, uh, sort of demigods on the Titan side. Um, and uh, Percy manages to defend the bridge uh, and send them away. But before that happens, Kronos uh, sort of says something pretty cryptic until this evening, Jackson. So I've got a feeling we're going to be seeing him again pretty soon. Now, with that all said, what do we think, folks? Dolly said, wow, that was a reasonably quick chapter, um, which is kind of funny because it's not like it was not a short chapter by by most of our sort of common terms. Like a short chapter is, at least in my head, like 2000 words ish. That one was like 3400. 
so you know the I mean the the uh, the last chapter for today is going to be about four thousand. Um, there's only about five hundred words less than that. So yeah, it's I don't know. Some of them just feel real quick. Uh, Roland says, "Does the Styx River make your emotions more intense?" I feel like that's a new for Percy as well as pushing people out of the way to see what's going on in NYC through the Olympus binoculars. Yeah, we're seeing some of that, right? There was certainly that mentioned during the fight um, when Percy said, uh, you know, he had this laugh that sort of came out that that uh, scared him as much as it scared any of the monsters. It definitely seems like there's something different about Percy. And I, I do wonder if, because remember, one of the stipulations was in order to not just get melted by the river sticks, you had to pick a spot that would remain very mortal, very human. That makes me wonder sort of what does that make the rest of him? I wonder if we'll get a good answer or if this will just be sort of a, a mystery. I know we have not gotten... Uh, a lot on this front. In fact, there was that moment where it sort of explicitly addressed that concern of like, how exactly does the River Styx's blessing, curse, hmm, work? Um, but Percy says, I don't really remember. Maybe they missed me. Maybe they hit and just didn't do any damage. Hard to tell. Um, I think based on the last... Based on the last one, the last fight that he had uh, right after the River Sticks, where he, you know he was shot at by all of those uh, skeleton guards, the fact that his clothes were totally like torn to shreds, but he wasn't harmed, makes me think they were probably making contact. It just wasn't doing any damage. That's my guess. That's a guess of mine. Um, I will say also, folks, that we've got like this is not like some big like um, thrilling piece, but. I think we've got one of my favorite pictures from this whole series coming up here. My favorite bits of art. Um, it is, I want to say it is the first the first piece of art from our next chapter. Yes, it is indeed. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. This is another week where we have got two short chapters, um, bookending one long chapter. So there's not like a real perfect sensible spot for me to take my break here. So instead, I'm just going to take it sort of when I need it the most, which is probably going to be after this chapter. So we're just going to keep on rolling for today, uh, which means that this great piece of art, you get to see it right now. Uh, I guess a little reminder. Hey, gang, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. If you want to find out more, you can use the links command, um, which will essentially just pop up the link, link tree slash sidecar stories. That's the one to uh, to explore if you're looking to find out more about this channel. But it's also the one that if you like this channel, that's the one to share. That one, you know, I used to, you know, we used to have like, you know, send people to YouTube or wherever. This one is our long-term solution for, for all of that. So, uh, you know, if you've got people coming in from older episodes, uh, at the very least, they'll be able to find the same place. Because the link tree is the spot. Share that sucker around. All right. Everybody. I hope you're ready for another chapter. I hope you're ready for some cool art. Um, uh, just because it's, I don't know, it's really interesting and and uh, <laughs> it's got a great ambiance to it and a great amount of detail. I, um, when I was homeschooled, we did a, a study of um, classical art styles and, you know, there were, there were a couple of different styles, but Impressionism certainly made its way into the curriculum. Um, and I wasn't really into it, but I found that more and more these days, I really like some of the modern impressionism but well i'll just show you what i'm talking about
Chapter 12. Rachel Makes a Bad Deal I grabbed Will Solace from the Apollo cabin and told the rest of his siblings to keep searching for Michael Yu. We borrowed a Yamaha FZ1 from an... Go, boy, oh boy, oh boy. What? I'm, I'm getting these ch chapters kicked off in a weird way now. What's my deal? I grabbed Will Solace from the Apollo cabin and told the rest of his siblings to keep searching for Michael Yu. We borrowed a Yamaha FZ1 from a sleeping biker and drove to the Plaza Hotel at speeds that would have given my mom a heart attack. I'd never driven a motorcycle before, but it wasn't any harder than riding a Pegasus. Along the way, I noticed a lot of empty pedestals that usually held statues. Plan 23 seemed to be working. I didn't know if that was good or bad. It only took us five minutes to reach the plaza. An old-fashioned white stone hotel with a gabled blue roof sitting at the southeast corner of Central Park. Tactically speaking, the plaza wasn't the best place for a headquarters. It wasn't the tallest building in town or the most centrally located, but it had old-school style and attracted a lot of famous demigods over the years like the Beatles and Alfred Hitchcock, so I figured we were in good company. I gunned the Yamaha over the curb and swerved to a stop at the fountain outside the hotel. Will and I hopped off. The statue at the top of the fountain called down. Oh, fine. I suppose you want me to watch your bike, too? She was a life-size bronze statue standing in the middle of a granite bowl. She wore only a bronze sheet around her legs, and she was holding a basket of metal fruit. I'd never paid her too much attention before. Then again, she'd never talked to me before. Are you supposed to be, uh, Demeter? I asked. A bronze apple sailed over my head. Everyone thinks I'm Demeter, she complained. I'm Pompona, the Roman goddess of plenty, but why should you care? Nobody cares about the minor gods. If you cared about the minor gods, you wouldn't be losing this war. Three cheers for Morpheus and Hecate, I say. Yeah, watch the bike, I told her. Pompona cursed in Latin and threw more fruit as Will and I ran toward the hotel. I'd never actually been inside the plaza. The lobby was impressive, with crystal chandeliers and passed-out rich people, but I didn't pay much attention. A couple of hunters gave us direction to the elevators, and we rode up to the penthouse suites. Demigods had completely taken over the top floors. Campers and hunters were crashed out on sofas, waking up in the bathroom, washing up in the bathrooms, ripping silk draperies to bandage their wounds, and helping themselves to snacks and sodas from the minibars. A couple of timber wolves were drinking out of the toilets. I was relieved to see that many of my friends had made it through the night alive. But everybody looked beat up. Percy! Jake Mason clapped me on the shoulder. We're getting reports. Later, I said. Where's Annabeth? The terrace. She's alive, man, but... I pushed past him. Under different circumstances, I would have loved the view from the terrace. It looked straight down onto Central Park. The morning was clear and bright, a perfect place for a picnic or a hike. Or, oh, the morning was clear and bright, perfect for a picnic or a hike or pretty much anything except fighting monsters. Annabeth lay on a lounge chair. Her face was pale and beaded with sweat. Even though she was covered in blankets, she shivered. Selena Beauregard was wiping her forehead with a cool cloth. 
Will and I pushed through a group of Athena kids. Will unwrapped Annabeth's bandages to examine the wound, and I wanted to faint. The bleeding was stopped, but the gash looked deep. The skin around the cut was a horrible shade of green. Annabeth, I choked up. She'd taken that knife from me. How could I have let that happen? Poison on the dagger, she mumbled. Pretty stupid of me, huh? Will Solace exhaled with relief. It's not so bad, Annabeth. A few more minutes and we would have been in trouble, but the venom hasn't gotten past the shoulder yet. Just lie still. Somebody hand me some nectar? I grabbed a canteen. Will cleaned out the wound with the godly drink while I held Annabeth's hand. Ow! Ow! Ah! She gripped my fingers so tight they turned purple, but she stayed still, like Will asked. Selena muttered words of encouragement. Will put some silver paste over the wound and hummed words in ancient Greek, a hymn to Apollo. Then he applied fresh bandages and stood up shakily. The healing must have taken a lot of his energy. He looked almost as pale as Annabeth. That should do it, he said, but we're going to need some mortal supplies. He grabbed a piece of hotel stationery, jotted down some notes, and handed it to one of the Athena guys. There's a Duane Reed on 5th. Normally, I would never steal. I would, Travis volunteered. Will glared at him. Leave some cash or drachmas to pay, whatever you've got, but this is an emergency. I've got a feeling we're going to have a lot more people to treat. Nobody disagreed. There was hardly a single demigod who hadn't already been wounded. Except me. All right, come on, guys, Travis Stoll said. Let's give Annabeth some space. We've got a drugstore to raid. Yeah, I mean, visit. The demigods shuffled back inside. Jake Mason grabbed my shoulder as he was leaving. We'll talk later, but it's under control. I'm using Annabeth's shield to keep an eye on things. The enemy withdrew at sunrise. Not sure why. We've got to look out on each bridge and tunnel. Thanks, man, I said. He nodded. Just take your time. He closed the terrace doors behind him, leaving Selena, Annabeth, and me alone. Annabeth pressed a... <coughs> Selena pressed a cool cloth to Annabeth's forehead. This is all my fault. No, Annabeth said weakly. Selena, how is it your fault? I've never been any good at camp, she murmured. Not like you are, pussy. If I was a better fighter... Her mouth trembled. Ever since Beckendorf died, she'd been getting worse, and every time I looked at her, it made me angry about his death all over again. Her expression reminded me of glass, like she might break at any minute. I swore to myself that if I ever found the spy who had cost her boyfriend his life, I would give him to Mrs. O'Leary as a chew toy. You're a great camper. Oh. You're a great camper, I told Selena. You're the best Pegasus rider we've got, and you get along with people. Believe me, anyone can make friends with Clarice has talent. She stared at me like I'd just given her an idea. That's it. We need the Aris cabin. I can go talk to Clarice. I, I know that I can help her to... I know I can convince her to help us. 
Whoa, 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 Selena. If, even if you could get off the island, Clarice is pretty stubborn. Once she gets angry... Please, Selena said. I can take a Pegasus. I know that I can make it back to camp. Let me try. I exchanged looks with Annabeth. She nodded slightly. I didn't like the idea. I didn't think Selena stood a good chance of convincing Clarice to fight. On the other hand, Selena was so distracted right now that she would just get herself hurt in battle. Maybe sending her back to camp would give her something else to focus on. Hold for sound. I didn't like the idea. I didn't think Selena stood a good chance of convincing Clarice to fight. On the other hand, Selena was so distracted right now, she would just get herself hurt in battle. Maybe sending her back to camp would give her something else to focus on. Uh, all right, I told her. I can't think of anybody better to try. Selena threw her arms around me, and she pushed back awkwardly, glancing at Annabeth. I'm sorry. Thank you, Percy. I won't let you down. Once she was gone, I knelt next to Annabeth and held her forehead. She was still burning up. You're cute when you're worried, she muttered. Your eyebrows get all scrunched together. Yeah, you're not going to die while I owe you a favor, I said. Why did you take that knife? You would have done the same thing for me. It was true. I guess we both knew it. Still, it felt like somebody was poking my heart with a cold metal rod. How did you know? Know what? I looked around to make sure we were alone. Then I leaned in close and whispered. My Achilles spot. If you hadn't taken that knife, I would have died. She got a faraway look in her eyes. Her breath smelled of grapes, maybe from the nectar. I don't know, Percy. I just had this feeling you were in danger. Where... where is the spot? I wasn't supposed to tell anyone, but this was Annabeth. If I couldn't trust her, I couldn't trust anybody. This small on my back. She lifted her hand. Where... Here? She put her hand on my spine and my skin tingled. I moved her fingers to the one spot that grounded me to my mortal life. A thousand volts of electricity seemed to arc through my body. You saved me, I said. Thanks. She removed her hand, but I kept holding it. So you owe me, she said weakly. What else is new? We watched the sun come up over the city. The traffic should have been heavy by now, but there were no cars honking, no crowds bustling along the sidewalks. Far away I could hear a car alarm echo through the streets. A plume of black smoke curled into the sky somewhere over Harlem. I wondered how many ovens had been left on when Morpheus' spell had hit, how many people had fallen asleep in the middle of cooking dinner.
Pretty soon there'll be more fires. Everyone in New York was in danger. And all those lives depended on us. You asked me why Hermes was mad at me, Annabeth said. Hey, you need to rest. No, I want to tell you. It's been bothering me for a long time. She moved her shoulder and winced. Uh, last year, Luke came to see me in San Francisco. In person? It felt like she just hit me with a hammer. He came to your house? This was before we went into the labyrinth. Before... She faltered, but I knew what she meant. Before he turned into Kronos. He came under a flag of truce. He said he only wanted five minutes to talk. He looked scared, Percy. He told me Kronos was going to use him to take over the world. He said he wanted to run away, like the old days. He wanted me to come with him. But you didn't trust him? Of course not. I thought it was a trick. Plus, well, a lot of things have changed since the old days. I told Luke there was no way. He got mad. He said... He said I might as well fight him right there because it was the last chance I would get. Her forehead broke out in sweat again. The story was taking too much of her energy. It's okay, I said. Try to get some rest. You don't understand, Percy. Hermes was right. Maybe if I had gone with him, I could have changed his mind. Or I had a knife. Luke was unarmed. I could have... Killed him? I said. You know that wouldn't have been right. She squeezed her eyes shut. Luke said Kronos would use him like a stepping stone. Those were his exact words. Kronos would use Luke and become even more powerful. He did that, I said. He possessed Luke's body. But what if Luke's body is just a transition? What if Kronos has a plan to become even more powerful? I could have stopped him. The war is my fault. Her story made me feel like I was back in the sticks, slowly dissolving. I remembered last summer, when the two-headed god, Janus, had warned Annabeth she would have to make a major choice, and that had happened after she saw Luke. Pan had also said something to her. You will play a great role, though not the role you have imagined. I wanted to ask her about the vision Hestia had shown me, about her early days with Luke and Talia. I knew it had something to do with my prophecy, but I didn't understand what. Before I could get up my nerve, the terrace door opened. Connor Stoll stepped through. Percy? He glanced at Annabeth like he didn't want to say anything bad in front of her, but I could tell he wasn't bringing good news. Mrs. O'Leary just came back with Grover. 
I think you should talk to him. Grover was having a snack in the living room. He was dressed for battle in an armored shirt made from tree bark and twist ties, with his wooden cudgel and his reed pipes hanging from his belt. The Demeter cabin was... The Demeter cabin whipped up a whole buffet in the hotel kitchens, everything from pizza to pineapple ice cream. Unfortunately, Grover was eating the furniture. He had already chewed the stuffing out of a fancy chair and was now gnawing on the armrest. Hey, dude, I said. We're only borrowing this place. <laughs> he had stuffing all over his face. I'm sorry, Percy. It's just Louis the Sixteenth furniture. It's delicious. Plus, I always eat furniture when I get... Yeah, when you get nervous, I said. I know. So what's up? He clapped on his hooves. I had the boat on the bed. Is she... She's going to be fine. She's resting. Grover took a deep breath. That's good. I mobilized most of the nature spirits in the city. Well, the ones that would listen to me anyway. He rubbed his forehead. I had no idea that acorns could hurt so much. Anyway, we're helping out as much as we can. He told me about the skirmishes they'd seen. Mostly they'd been covering uptown, where we hadn't had enough demigods. Hellhounds had appeared in all sorts of places. Shadow traveling inside our lines, and the dryads and satyrs had been fighting them off. A young dragon had appeared in Harlem, and a dozen wood nymphs died before the monster was finally defeated. As Grover talked, Talia entered the room with two of her lieutenants. She nodded to me grimly. We went outside to check with Annabeth and came back in. Oh, excuse me. She nodded to me grimly, went outside to check on Annabeth, and then came back in. She listened while Grover completed his report, the details getting worse and worse. We lost 20 satyrs against some giants at Fort Washington, he said, his voice trembling. Almost half of my kinsmen. River spirits drowned the giants in the end, but... Talia shouldered her bow. Percy... Kronos's forces are still gathering by every bridge and tunnel. And Kronos isn't the only titan. One of my hunters spotted a huge man in golden arm mustering an army on the Jersey shore. I'm not sure who he is, but he radiates power like only a titan or a god. I remembered the golden titan from my dream. The one on Mount Othrys who erupted into flames. Yeah, great, I said. Any good news? Talia shrugged. We've sealed off the subway tunnels into Manhattan. My best trappers take care of it. Also, it seems like the enemy is waiting for tonight to attack. I think Luke... She caught herself. I mean, Kronos needs time to regenerate after each fight. He's still not comfortable in his new form. It's taking a lot of his power to slow time down around the city. Grover nodded. Most of his forces are more powerful at night, too, but they'll be back after sundown. I tried to think clearly. Okay. Any word from the gods? Talia shook her head. I know Lady Artemis would be here if she could. Athena, too, but Zeus has ordered them to stay at his side. Last I heard, 
Typhoon was destroying the Ohio River Valley. We should reach the Appalachian Mountains by midday. So, at best, I said, we got another two days before he arrives. Jake Mason cleared his throat. He'd been standing there so silently I'd almost forgotten he was in the room. You pussy, something else, he said. The way Kronos showed up at the Williamsburg Bridge, like he knew that you were going to be there. He shifted his forces to our weakest points. As soon as we deployed, he changed tactics. He barely touched the Lincoln Tunnel where the hunters were strong. He went for our weakest spots like he knew. Yeah, like he had inside information, I said. The spy. What spy? Talia demanded. I told her about the silver charm Kronos had shown me. The communication device. Well, that's bad, she said. That's very bad. It could be anyone, Jake said. We were all standing there when Percy gave the orders. But what can we do? Grover asked. Frisk every demigod until we find a scythe charm? They all looked at me, waiting for a decision. I couldn't afford to show how panicked I felt, even if things seemed hopeless. We keep fighting, I said. We can't obsess over this... We can't obsess about this spy. If we're suspicious of each other, we'll just tear ourselves apart. You guys were awesome last night. I couldn't ask for a braver army. Let's set up the rotation for the watchers. Rest up while you can. We've got a long night ahead of us. The demigods mumbled agreement. They went their separate ways to sleep or eat or repair their weapons. Percy, you too, Talia said. We'll keep an eye on things. You go lie down. We need you in good shape for tonight. I didn't argue too hard. I found the nearest bedroom and crashed on the canopied bed. I thought I was too wired to sleep, but my eyes closed almost immediately. In my dream, I saw Nico D'Angelo alone in the Garden of Hades. He'd just dug a hole in one of Persephone's flower beds, which I didn't figure would make the queen very happy. He poured a goblet of wine into the hole and began to chant. Let the dead taste again. Let them rise and take this offering. Maria D'Angelo, show yourself. White smoke gathered. A human figure formed, but it wasn't Nico's mother. It was a girl with dark hair, olive skin, and silvery clothes of a hunter. Bianca, Nico said, but... Don't summon our mother, Nico, she warned. She's the one spirit you're forbidden to see. Why? he demanded. What's our father hiding? Pain. Bianca said. Hatred. A curse that stretches back to the great prophecy. What do you mean? Nico said. I have to know! The knowledge is only going to hurt you. Remember what I said. Holding grudges is a fatal flaw for children of Hades. I know that, Nico said. But I'm not the same as I used to be, Bianca. Stop trying to protect me. Brother, you don't understand... Nico swiped his hand through the mist, and Bianca's image dissipated. Maria D'Angelo, he said again. Speak to me! A different image formed. 
It was a scene rather than a single ghost. In the mist I saw Nico and Bianca as little children, playing in the lobby of an elegant hotel, chasing each other around marble columns. A woman sat on a nearby sofa. She wore a black dress, gloves, and a black veiled hat like a star from an old 1940s movie. She had Bianca's smile and Nico's eyes. On a chair next to her sat a large, oily man in a black pinstripe suit. With a shock, I realized it was Hades. He was leaning toward the woman, using his hands as he talked like he was agitated. Please, my dear, he said, you must come to the underworld. I don't care what Persephone thinks. I can keep you safe there. No, no, my love, she spoke with an Italian accent. Raise our children in the land of the dead. I will not do this. Maria, listen to me. The war in Europe has turned the other gods against me. The prophecy has been made. No children are safe. My children are no longer safe. Poseidon and Zeus have forced me into an agreement. None of us are to have demigod children ever again. But you already have Nico and Bianca, surely? No! The prophecy warns of a child who turns sixteen. Zeus has decreed the children I currently have must be turned over to Camp Half-Blood for proper training. But I know what he means. At best, they'll be watched, imprisoned, turned against their father. Even more likely, he will not take the chance. He won't allow my demigod children to reach sixteen. He's going to find a way to destroy them, and I won't risk that. Certainly, man, Maria said. We will stay together. Zeus is on imbecile. I couldn't help admiring her courage, but Hades glanced nervously at the ceiling. Maria, please. I told you Zeus gave me a deadline of last week to turn over the children. His wrath will be terrible, and I cannot hide you forever. As long as you're with the children, you're in danger, too. Maria smiled. And again, it was creepy how much she looked like her daughter. You are a god, my love. You will protect us. But I will not take Nico and Bianca to the underworld. Hades wrung his hands. Then there is another option. I know a place in the desert where time stands still. I could send the children there just, just for a while, for their own safety, and we could be together. I would build you a golden palace by the sticks. Maria D'Angelo laughed gently. You are a kind man, my love. A generous man. The other gods should see you as I do, and they would not fear you so. But Nico and Bianca need their mother. Besides, they are only children. The gods wouldn't really hurt them. You don't know my family, Hades said darkly. Please, Maria, I can't lose you. She touched his lips with her fingers. You will not lose me. Wait for me when I get my purse. Watch the children. She kissed the Lord of the Dead and rose from the sofa. Hades watched her walk upstairs as if her every step caused him pain. A moment later, he tensed. The children stopped playing as if they sensed something, too. No! No! 
Hades said, but even his godly powers were too slow. He only had time to erect a wall of black energy around the children before the hotel exploded. The force was so violent the entire mist image dissolved. And when it came into focus again, I saw Hades kneeling in the ruins, holding the broken form of Maria D'Angelo. Fires still burned all around him. Lightning flashed across the sky and thunder rumbled. Little Nika, little Nico and Bianca stared at their mother, uncomprehendingly. The fury Electo appeared behind them, hissing and flapping her leathery wings. The children didn't seem to notice her. Zeus! Hades shook his fist at the sky. I will crush you for this. I will bring her back. My lord, you cannot, Electo warned. You of all immortals must respect the laws of death. Hades glowed with rage. I thought he would show his true form and vaporize his own children, but at the last moment, he seemed to regain control. Take him, he told Electo, choking back a sob. Wash their memories clean in the lathe and bring them to the Lotus Hotel. Zeus will not harm them there. As you wish, my lord, Electo said. And the woman's body. Take her as well, he said bitterly. Give her the ancient rites. Electo, the children, and Maria's body dissolved into shadows, leaving Hades alone in the ruins. I warned you, a new voice said. Hades turned. A girl in a multicolored dress stood by the smoldering remains of the sofa. She had black hair and sad eyes. She was no more than twelve. I didn't know her, but she looked strangely familiar. You dare come here, Hades growled. I should blast you to dust. You cannot, the girl said. The power of Delphi protects me. With a chill, I realized I was looking at the Oracle of Delphi, back when she was alive and young. Somehow, seeing her like this was even spookier than seeing her as a mummy. You killed the woman I loved, Hades roared. Your prophecy brought us to this. He loomed over the girl, but she didn't flinch. Zeus ordained the explosion to destroy the children, she said, because you defied his will. I had nothing to do with it. And I did warn you to hide them sooner. I couldn't. Maria wouldn't let me. Besides, they were innocent. Nevertheless, they are your children, which makes them dangerous. Even if you put them away in the Lotus Hotel, you only delay the problem. 
Nico and Bianca will never be able to rejoin the world, lest they turn 16. Because of your great so-called prophecy, and you've forced me into an oath to have no other children, you've left me nothing. I foresee the future, the girl said. I cannot change it. Black fire lit the god's eyes, and I knew something bad was coming. I wanted to yell at the girl to hide or run. Well then, Oracle, hear the words of Hades, he growled. Perhaps I cannot bring back Maria, nor can I bring you an early death. But your soul is still mortal, and I can curse you. The girl's eyes widened. You would not... I swear, Hades said, as long as my children remain outcasts, as long as I labor under the curse of your great prophecy, the Oracle of Delphi will never have another mortal host. You will never rest in peace. No other shall take your place. Your body will wither and die, and still the oracle's spirit will be locked inside you. You will speak your bitter prophecies until you crumble to nothing. The oracle will die with you. The girl screamed, and the misty image was blasted into shreds. Nico fell to his knees in Persephone's garden, his face white with shock. Standing in front of him was the real Hades, towering in his black robes and scowling down at his son. And just what, he asked Nico, do you think you're doing? A black explosion filled my dreams. Then the scene changed. Rachel Elizabeth Dale was walking on a white sand beach. She wore a swimsuit with a t-shirt wrapped around her waist. Her shoulders and face were sunburned. She knelt and began riding with the surf. She knelt and began riding in the surf with the sand. I tried to make out the letters. I thought my dyslexia was acting up until I realized she was writing in ancient Greek. That was impossible. The dream had to be false. Rachel finished writing a few words and muttered, What in the world? I can read Greek, but I only recognized one word before the sea washed it away. My name, Perseus. Rachel stood abruptly and backed away from the surf. Oh, gods, she said. That's what it means. She turned and ran, kicking up sand as she raced back to her family's villa. She pounded up the porch steps, breathing hard. Her father looked up from the Wall Street Journal. Dad? Rachel marched up to him. We have to go back. Her dad's mouth twitched like she was, like he was trying to remember how to smile. Bank? We just got here. There's trouble in New York. Percy's in danger. Did he call you? No, not exactly, but I know it's a feeling. Mr. Dare folded his newspaper. Your mother and I have been looking forward to this vacation for a long time. No, you haven't. You both hate the beach. You're just too stubborn to admit it. 
Now, Rachel, I'm telling you something is wrong in New York City. The whole city! I don't know what exactly, but it's under attack. Her father sighed. I think we would have heard about something like that in the news. No, Rachel insisted. Not this kind of attack. Have you had any calls since we got here? Her father frowned. No. But it is the weekend. It's the middle of summer. You always get calls, Rachel said. You've got to admit that's strange. Her father hesitated. We can't just leave. We've spent a lot of money. Look, Rachel said. Daddy, Percy needs me. I have to deliver a message. It's life or death. <laughs> what message? What are you talking about? I can't tell you. Then you can't go. Rachel closed her eyes like she was building up her courage. Dad, let me go, and I'll make a deal with you. Mr. Dare sat forward. Deals were something he understood. I'm listening. Clarion... Clarion Ladies Academy. I'll... I'll go there in the fall. I won't even complain, but you have to let me go back to New York right now. He was silent for a long time. Then he opened his phone and made a call. Douglas, prep the plane. We're leaving for New York. Yes, immediately. Rachel flung her arms around him, and her father seemed surprised, like she'd never hugged him before. I'll make it up to you, Dad. He smiled, but his expression was chilly. He studied her like he wasn't seeing his daughter, just the young lady he wanted her to be, once Clarion Academy got through with her. Yes, Rachel. The scene faded. I mumbled in my sleep. Rachel, no. I was still tossing and turning when Talia shook me awake. Percy, she said. Come on, it's late afternoon. We got visitors. I sat up, disoriented. The bed was too comfortable, and I hated sleeping in the middle of the day. Visitors, I said. Talia nodded grimly. A titan wants to see you. Under a flag of truce. He's got a message from Kronos. All right, folks. There it is, the end of our second of three chapters for the evening. Uh, rolling along at about 5.30. Yeah, we're a little bit ahead of schedule, I think. Just a, just a touch. Just a, just a little touch. So, everyone, I hope you're having a good time. Uh, I'm going to take a quick break, as we typically do. When I come back, I'm going to do some review. We're going to talk a little bit about these chapters. And then we are going to uh, move on to our third and final chapter for the evening, which is uh, chapter 13, A Titan Brings Me a Present. Interesting. So, folks, I hope you enjoy. Um, this is like this is one of the first chapters in a while, certainly, but honestly, in a lot of this series, um, 
this chapter is one of the first ones where I really feel like I got to flex like I did back in Harry Potter. Uh, you know, with Michael Yu's voice and uh, uh, Jason and uh, – or Jake, excuse me, Jake Mason um, and Talia and Annabeth and Percy. Having them all in the same spot, having these conversations, but having it with voices – oh, and Grover. Uh, having it with voices that I sort of recognize and can keep up with, it, it, it felt good. felt good to be back into it. So, everyone. I will see you in about five minutes. You will see the timer up here on screen. And don't forget, folks, if you want to know more about the show, please do check out the link tree, uh, link tree slash sidecar stories. That's where you can find out more about what we get up to around these parts. Hey, everybody, I'll see you in five. Bye-bye. And hello to Twitch. How are you all? folks i hope you're having an excellent one um let's see Rowlet says i really can't tell if rachel's dad is just a jerk or if he's somehow involved in all of this i feel like he is he's too powerful and the vacation was too convenient for him not to be i think her dad supplies chronos with money or supplies does anybody else get a feeling uh uh oh and then a second question does anyone have a feeling as to what cabin the spy sits in I want to say Hermes, but I feel like that's super obvious. It does seem like that is sort of the most, like, statistically best answer, right? Because that's the one that's got the most campers in it. Um, that's the one that has the most folks who are unclaimed and therefore most likely to be sort of susceptible to, like, like uh, the most persuadable, you know? Uh, the ones who are most likely to uh, be tempted over to that side. Um, but some... Really, really good questions from Rollit. Rollit, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think you've got you've presented two big, um, you know, glaring questions. Um, one sort of less glaring than the other. Of course, the the issue of Rachel's dad is like we know there's something significant about it because it was brought up explicitly. One of one of uh, our interactions with a god. Uh, I want to say it was maybe Pan. Um, uh, confirmed that like, it, like the. Uh, Rachel Elizabeth Dare's father is on the gods' radar in some way, right? We know it's a lot about, like, land development and, like, buying up natural places and, and developing them into something else. But, I, like, Mr. Dare is on their radar somehow. Um, and so what power does he wield? Is it anything beyond simply just a, a person who, uh, you know, tends to wreck a lot of uh, undeveloped places? Or is it something more than that? Uh, and then there's the super glaring question, which it just, like, it rankles me that they're not addressing yet. Uh, they as a team, not this as a book. But um, why have they not gone through and uh, hunted for this spy yet? Grover's idea of a pat-down was not a bad idea. Um, now, at this point, to try and sort of collect everyone, uh, th at the point where they were sort of discussing it, might have been a bad idea. But right now, at this moment... Uh, I mean, there, there have been a couple of great opportunities to say, hey, okay, so there are only 40 of us. Let's line up and, uh, you know, we, we know there's – or we've got at least a theory that there's only one spy. So let's have, you know, five of us come along and we will search each other and then we're going to search all the way down this line of 40 because that's only going to take like 10, 15 minutes. Rollet says, also, how is there not some sort of magic or something to figure out who has it? They've got this. They've got this idea that there's going to be this charm here. I think that's something that they have sort of like. That's a theory that they have, not necessarily a, a thing that's confirmed. But 
you're still absolutely right. You know, like, why is it that, uh, why, why, you know, perhaps there is some sort of magic to, um, to sort of suss this out, but at the very least, it seems like this is a huge hole in their defenses, um, that the enemy is being fed information about, and it's not like it, clearly it's not just somebody at camp, right? We know it's not somebody from, um, or at least we can very strongly suspect it's not somebody from the air race cabin because they're not here right now. And clearly the spy is here because, um, the enemy is still being fed information about their current movements. So what is going on with this spy? Why have they not made bigger attempts to sort out who this is? If it were me, if I were here, I would be making that like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not Percy, obviously I'm not Annabeth. Um, I think, uh, I, I, I feel, I, I do wonder if I might like the Athena cabin seems like the sort of spot where I would like to end up. Um, I know this is something where you get to choose, but I feel like I could see myself in that cabin um, more than most of the others. Uh, maybe Hephaestus, I guess, but y'all, I would absolutely, I would be making this my priority. Um, not a, I don't know that I would necessarily be a great fighter. I suppose if I had training, I'm, you know, I've got, I think I've got a build for it, sure, but I've got slow feet. Um, my footwork is not good. At the end of the day, I think I would absolutely be making that my number one priority is hunting the mole that would be that would be where i am at that would be what i'm doing um i would be like bouncing from group to group and eventually i would show up and say hey percy look who i found here it is there they are get them get them got them good <laughs> throw them in the river oh man <laughs> roll it's got some theories but not super sure about them roll it that is quite all right that is part of the fun of reading through these so everyone um as I've mentioned countless times, I do hope you're enjoying it. Um, I think it's time we get into our next and final chapter for the evening, chapter 13. A Titan brings me a present. Uh, but this means, of course, that for anyone showing up late, we're going to do a quick review. Chapters 11 and 12. Chapter 11, we break a bridge. Pretty straightforward chapter, not terribly long. Uh, big battle on the Brooklyn Bridge trying to hold off um, the Dracane and uh, Hellhounds and the Minotaur that are uh, advancing across it. Percy makes short work of the Minotaur. Things are a lot easier when you're invincible in all but one tiny place in the small of your back uh, after taking that dip in the River Styx last episode. Um, and so Percy is able to handily defeat most of them. Um, but then Kronos appears with a little group of, uh, you know, Titan-aligned demigods and Kronos in, in Luke's form. Although I have noticed something. Tell me if y'all have noticed this as well. They make mention of it in in other other sort of cases, like when they're dis having discussions about Luke, but when we're actually in the scene, on that scene on the Brooklyn Bridge, for instance, not one mention that Kronos is wearing Luke's body. They talk about it a little bit later when you know Annabeth and Percy are actually having a discussion about this, but uh, they have stopped. They've stopped referring to Luke as Luke. Uh, it's just Kronos now. Um, they have a battle, and it seems to be kind of a, a draw after Percy uses some of his water magics. Um, and they push Kronos and his army back across the bridge after destroying it. So, looks like they're not going to get through this way, but there is a showdown coming uh, the next evening. Uh, as the sun starts to rise in that particular battle. They make their way back, uh, where it seems that after taking a knife shot from uh, uh, in Percy's stead, Annabeth is not in good shape. There was poison on the blade, and so she is wounded and 
in poor condition. They meet up at the Plaza Hotel, which is the demigod's location of choice for, um, it seems for recreation, as it, we, there was a mention of, like, the Beatles and Alfred Hitchcock hanging out there, who were apparently all demigods. Um, and then uh, now it serves as their headquarters for this invasion. Um, they are uh, sort of holed up here, and it seems like lots of demigods have survived. Not all, but lots of them. And uh, we get a few things from this. First of all, Selena Beauregard feeling guilt about not being a good fighter. She's going to go back to camp and try to convince Clarice to join this fight because the whole Ares cabin is following Clarice's orders. And Clarice says essentially the Ares cabin has been um, disrespected for the last time. So Selena goes. Annabeth uh, sort of tries to tell Percy about what it was like uh, in the times before, and more importantly, that Luke came and visited her about a year ago, before they went into the labyrinth, but certainly after a lot of their adventures, and um, asked Annabeth to just disappear with him again, that things with Kronos were getting too hot. Um, he wanted to disappear, and he wanted her to come with him. And she thought it was a trick, so she didn't agree. Um, he got angry, and... Percy thinks maybe this is what Hermes was talking about when he said that Annabeth had a chance to stop this. He still doesn't know much more about what all happened, what was so important about things with, uh, um, you know, with with Luke's mother and father. How did that all shake out? But um, he's got a little bit more insight. And finally, he goes to sleep, preparing for the next night of fighting, and has a dream wherein... Uh, he sees Nico trying to understand more about his own life, and he calls the ghost of Bianca D'Angelo, his mother, uh, excuse me, uh, Maria D'Angelo, his mother, and uh, Bianca shows up at first and tells him, no, please don't look for this, it will hurt you to know these things, uh, but um, I think, he, frankly, I think he makes the right choice. I think not knowing is often really harmful to trying to deal with things um now is that exclusively true no but i think uh as a rule better to know and and process than to simply have this massive thing that continues to affect your life uh and just not have knowledge of it nico sees the event in which his mother dies uh hades is trying to convince her to come with him, with the children, down to the underworld where they can be safe from uh, the things that are happening because it seems like this is happening during World War II. Um, uh, World War One, World War Two. Let's see, 40s, so World War II. Um, uh, you know, all the things going on with the, the other children of the gods. Um, sounds like Zeus is going to be hunting for his children. And while she is with the children, she won't be safe either. Um, well... She goes upstairs to get her purse, and, you know, she she has been pretty reluctant to... Uh, she says, you know, the c children can't grow up in the underworld. That's not going to work. Um, and as she goes to get her purse, well, uh, Zeus blasts the hotel to pieces. Um, Z uh, Hades is able to protect Bianca and Nico, but Maria dies. Um, and Hades arranges for Bianca and Nico to be sent to the Lotus Hotel, where, as we know, they spend the next 40 years, or what, no, 70 years, um, something like that. 
ish, roughly. Uh, so that's how that all went down. Uh, and then another view of uh, another sort of vision of Rachel Elizabeth Dare on vacation with her family, uh, where it seems that she's writing in Greek in the sand, which doesn't make a lot of sense. She's not supposed to know ancient Greek. Um, and then Percy spots his name and Rachel runs to her father and says, we have to go now. I have to warn Percy about something. It seems she's had some sort of insight. Um, and that's where we're at. Oh, one more thing. Um, uh, after after Hades' uh, um, the well, Nico and Bianca's mother uh, was killed, Hades, um, in sort of revenge uh, against the Oracle of Delphi, cursed the Oracle, um, because the Oracle can't be killed, what have you, um, cursed the Oracle to sort of like grow old and and never find another person for this uh to, to become the oracle uh essentially cursing the oracle to like wither and and grow ancient rather than die and and pass on to, to have some you know to, to rest in peace essentially uh hades cursed the oracle so that that couldn't happen and so that's why the oracle is the way that the oracle is uh, and then we get the stuff with rachel there etc etc um, and that brings us to where we're at now. Um, turns out there is a Titan approaching under a flag of truce with a message from Kronos. And uh, Percy is off to meet him. Here we go. Chapter 13. A Titan brings me a present. We could see the white flag from half a mile away. It was as big as a soccer field, carried by a 30-foot-tall giant with bright blue skin and icy gray hair. It's a Hyperborean, Talia said. The giant's at a north. It's a bad sign they've sided with Kronos. They're usually peaceful. You've met them, I said. Hmm, there's a big colony in Alberta. He did not want to get in a snowball fight with those guys. As the giant got closer, I could see three human-sized envoys with him. A half-blood in armor, an imposa demon with a black dress and flaming hair, and a tall man in a tuxedo. The imposa held the tux dude's arm, so they looked like a couple on their way to a Broadway show or something, except for her flaming hair and fangs. The group walked leisurely toward Heckscher Playground. The swings and ball courts were empty. The only sound was the fountain on Umpire Rock. I looked at Grover. Is the Tux dude the Titan? He nodded nervously. He looks like a magician. I hate magicians. They usually have rabbits. I stared at him. You're scared of bunnies? <laughs> They're big bullies, always stealing celery from defenseless satyrs. Talia coughed. What? Grover demanded. We'll have to work on your bunny phobia later on, I said. Here they come. The man in the tux stepped forward. He was taller than the average human, about seven feet. His black hair was tied into a ponytail. Large, round glasses covered his eyes, but what really caught my attention was the skin on his face. 
It was covered in scratches, like he'd been attacked by a small animal. A really, really mad hamster, maybe. Percy Jackson, he said in a silky voice. It's a great honor. His lady friend, the imposter, hissed at me. She'd probably heard how I destroyed two of her sisters last summer. My dear, Tuck's dude said to her, why don't you make yourself comfortable over there, eh? She released his arm and drifted over to a park bench. I glanced at the armed demigod behind Tuck's dude. I hadn't recognized him in his new helmet, but it was my old backstabbing buddy, Ethan Nakamura. His nose looked like a squashed tomato from our fight on the Williamsburg Bridge. That made me feel better. Hey, Ethan, I said. You're looking good. Ethan glared at me. To business, Tuck's dude extended his hand. I am Prometheus. I was too surprised to shake. The fire stealer guy? The chain to the rock with the vultures guy? Prometheus winced. He touched the scratches on his face. Please don't mention the vultures. But yes, I stole the fire from the gods and gave it to your ancestors. In return, the ever-merciful Zeus had me chained to a rock and tortured for all eternity. But how did I get free? Hercules did that eons ago. So you see, I've got a soft spot for heroes. Some of you can be quite civilized. Unlike the company that you keep, I noticed. I was looking at Ethan, but Prometheus apparently thought I meant the Imposa. Oh, demons aren't so bad, he said. You just have to keep them well fed. Now, Percy Jackson, let us parley. He waved me toward a picnic table and we sat down. Talia and Grover stood behind me. The blue giant propped his white flag against a tree and began absentmindedly playing in the playground. He stepped on the monkey bars and crushed them, but he didn't seem angry. He just frowned and said, Uh-oh! Then he stepped in the fountain and broke the concrete bowl in half. Uh-oh! The water froze where his foot touched it. A bunch of stuffed animals hung from his belt. The huge kind you get for grand prizes at an arcade. He reminded me of Tyson, and the idea of fighting him made me sad. Prometheus sat forward and laced his fingertips. He looked earnest, kindly, and wise. Percy, your position is weak. You know you can't stop another assault. We'll see. Prometheus looked pained, like he really did care what happened to me. Percy, I'm the titan of forethought. I know what's going to happen. Also the titan of crafty counsel, Grover put in. Emphasis on crafty? Prometheus shrugged. True enough, Sator. But I supported the gods in the last war. I told Kronos, you don't have the strength. You'll lose, and I was right. So you see, I know how to pick the winning side. This time, I'm back in Kronos. 
Yeah, because Zeus chained you to a rock, I guessed. Partly, yes. I won't deny I want revenge. But that's not the reason I'm supporting Kronos. It's the wisest choice. I'm here because I thought you might listen to reason. He drew a map on the table with his finger. Wherever he touched, golden lines appeared, glowing on the concrete. This is Manhattan. We have armies here, 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 and here. We know your numbers. We outnumber you twenty to one. Our spy's been keeping you posted, I guessed. Prometheus smiled apologetically. At any rate, our forces are growing daily. Tonight, Kronos will attack. You will be overwhelmed. You have fought bravely, but there's just no way you can hold all of Manhattan. You'll be forced to retreat to the Empire State Building. There, you'll be destroyed. I've seen this. It will happen. I thought about the picture Rachel had drawn in my dreams. An army at the base of the Empire State Building. I remembered the words of the young oracle girl in my dream. I foresee the future. I cannot change it. Prometheus spoke with such certainty it was hard not to believe him. I won't let it happen, I said. Prometheus brushed a speck off of his tux lapel. Understand, Percy, you are refighting the Trojan War here. Patterns repeat themselves in history. They reappear just as monsters do. A great siege, two armies. The only difference is this time you are defending. You are Troy. And you know what happens to the Trojans, don't you? So you're going to try and cram a wooden horse into an elevator in this Empire State Building. Yeah, good luck. Prometheus smiled. Troy was completely destroyed, Percy. You don't want that to happen here. Stand down, and New York will be spared. Your forces will be granted amnesty. I will personally assure your safety. Let Cronus take Olympus. Who cares? Typhon will destroy the gods. Anyway. Right. And I'm supposed to believe... Kronos would spare the city. All he wants is Olympus, Prometheus promised. The might of the gods is tied to the seats of power. You saw what happened to Poseidon once his undersea palace was attacked. I winced. I remembered how old and decrepit my father looked. Yes, Prometheus said sadly. I know that was hard for you. When Kronos destroys Olympus, the gods will fade. They will become so weak that they will be easily defeated. Kronos would rather do this while Typhon has the Olympians distracted in the west. Much easier, fewer lives lost. But make no mistake, the best you can do is to slow us down. The day after tomorrow, Typhon arrives in New York, and you will have no chance at all. The gods and Mount Olympus will still be destroyed, but it will be much messier much, much worse for you and your city. Either way, the Titans will rule. Talia pounded her fist on the table. 
I serve Artemis. The hunters are going to fight till the last breath. Percy, you're not seriously going to consider this slimeball's offer, are you? I figured Prometheus was going to blast her, but he just smiled. Your courage does you credit, Talia Grace. Talia stiffened. That's my mother's surname. I don't use it. As you wish, Prometheus said casually, but I could tell he'd gotten under her skin. I'd never even heard Talia's last name before. Somehow it made her seem almost normal. Less mysterious and powerful. At any rate, Titan said, you need not be my enemy. I have always been a helper of mankind. That's a load of minotaur dung, Talia said. When mankind first sacrificed to the gods, you tricked him into giving you the best portion. You gave us fire to annoy the gods, not because you cared about us. Prometheus shook his head. You don't understand. I helped shape your nature. A wiggling lump of clay appeared in his hands. He fashioned it into a little doll with arms and legs. The lump man didn't have any eyes, but it groped around on the table, stumbling over Prometheus's fingers. I have been whispering in man's ear since the beginning of your existence. I represent your curiosity, your sense of exploration, your inventiveness. Help me to save you, Percy. Do this, and I will give mankind a new gift. A new revelation that will move you as far forward as fire did. You can't make that kind of advance under the gods. They would never allow it. But this could be a new golden age for you. Or... He made a fist and smashed the clay man into a pancake. The blue giant rumbled. Uh-oh! Over at the park bench, the imposa bared her fangs in a smile. Percy, you know the Titans and their offspring are not all bad, Prometheus said. You've met Calypso. My face felt hot. That's different. Oh, much like me, she did nothing wrong, and yet she was exiled forever. Simply because she was Atlas's daughter. We are not your enemies. Don't let the worst happen, he pleaded. We offer you peace. I looked at Ethan Nakamura. You must hate this. I don't know what you mean. If we took this deal, you wouldn't get revenge. You wouldn't get to kill us all. Isn't that what you want? His good eye flared. All I wanted to respect, Jackson. The gods never gave me that. You wanted me to go to your stupid camp and spend all my time crammed into the Hermes cabin because I'm not important? Not even recognized. He sounded just like Luke when he tried to kill me in the woods at camp four years ago. The memory made my hand ache where the pit scorpion had stung me. Your mom's the goddess of revenge, I told Ethan. We should respect that. Nemesis stands for balance. When people have too much good luck, she tears them down. Which is why she took your eye. It was a payment, he growled. 
In exchange, she swore to me that one day I would tip the balance of power. I would bring the miner God's respect. And I was a small price to pay. He's a great mom. At least she keeps her word. Unlike the Olympians. She always pays her debts. Good or evil. Yeah, I said. So I saved your life and you repay me by raising Kronos. That's okay, that's fair. Ethan grabbed the hilt of his sword, but Prometheus stopped him. No, no, the Titan said. We're on a diplomatic mission. Prometheus stared at me as if trying to understand my anger. Then he nodded like he just picked a thought from my brain. It bothers you what happened to Luke, he decided. Hestia didn't fool Ish. Hestia didn't show you the full story. Perhaps if you understood... The Titan reached out. Talia cried a warning, but before I could react, Prometheus's index finger touched my forehead. Suddenly, I was back in May Castellan's living room. Candles flickered in the fireplace mantel, reflected on the mirrors along the walls. Through the kitchen doorway, I could see Talia sitting at the table while Miss Castellan bandaged her wounded leg. Seven-year-old Annabeth sat next to her, playing with a Medusa beanbag toy. Hermes and Luke stood apart in the living room. The god's face looked liquid in candlelight, like he couldn't decide what shape to adopt. He was dressed in a navy blue jogging outfit with winged Reeboks. Why show yourself now? Luke demanded. His shoulders were tense as if he expected a fight. All these years I've been calling to you, praying that you'd show up, and nothing. You left me with her. He pointed toward the kitchen like he couldn't bear to look at his mother, much less say her name. Luke, do not dishonor her, Hermes warned. Your mother did the best that she could. As for me, I couldn't interfere with your path. The children of the gods must find their own way. So is for my own good. Growing up in the streets, fending for myself, fighting monsters. You're my son, Hermes said. I knew you had the ability. When I was only a baby, I crawled from my cradle and set out for... I'm not a god. Just once you could have said something. You could have helped when... He took an unsteady breath, lowering his voice when no one in the kitchen could have... I'm not a god. Just once you could have said something. You could have helped when... He took an unsteady breath, lowering his voice so no one in the kitchen could overhear. When she was having one of her fits, shaking me and saying crazy things about my fate. When I used to hide in the closet so she wouldn't find me with those, those glowing eyes. Do you even care that I was scared? Do you even know when I finally ran away? In the kitchen, Miss Castellan chattered aimlessly pouring Kool-Aid for Talia and Annabeth as she told them stories about Luke as a baby. Talia rubbed her bandaged leg nervously. Annabeth glanced into the living room and held up a burned cookie for Luke to see. She mouthed, Can we go now? Luke, I care very much, Hermes said slowly. But gods must not interfere directly in mortal affairs. It's one of our ancient laws. Especially when your destiny... 
His voice trailed off. He stared at the candles as if remembering something unpleasant. What? Luke said. What about my destiny? You should not have come back, Hermes muttered. It only upsets you both. However, I see now that you're getting too old to be on the run without some help. I'll speak with Chiron at Camp Half-Blood and ask him to send a satyr to collect you. We're doing fine without your help, Luke growled. Now what were you saying about my destiny? The wings on Hermes' Reeboks fluttered restlessly. He studied his son like he was trying to memorize his face. And suddenly, a cold feeling washed through me. I realized Hermes knew what May Castellan's mutterings meant. I wasn't sure how, but looking at his face, I was absolutely certain. Hermes understood what would happen to Luke someday. How he would turn evil. My son, he said, I'm the god of travelers, the god of loads. If I know anything, I know you must walk your own path, even though it tears my heart. You don't love me. I promise I... I do love you. Go to camp. I'll see that you get a quest soon. Perhaps you can defeat the Hydra or steal the apples of Hesperides. You will get a chance to be a hero before... Before what? Luke's voice was trembling now. What did my mom see that made her make... What did my mom see that made her like this? What's going to happen to me? If you love me, tell me. Hermes' expression tightened. I can't. Then you don't care, Luke yelled. In the kitchen, the talking died abruptly. Luke, May Castellan called. Is that you? Is my boy all right? Luke turned to hide his face, but I could see the tears in his eyes. I'm fine. I have a new family. I don't need either of you. I'm your father, Hermes insisted. A father's supposed to be around. I never even met you. Talia, Annabeth, come on, we're leaving. Oh, my boy, don't go, May Castellan called after him. I have your lunch ready. Luke stormed out the door, Talia and Annabeth scrambling after him. May Castellan tried to follow, but Hermes held her back. As the screen door slammed, May collapsed in Hermes' arms and began to shake. Her eyes opened, glowing green, and she desperately clutched Hermes' shoulders. My son, she hissed in a dry voice. Danger! Terrible fate! I know, my love, Hermes said sadly. Believe me, I know. The image faded. Prometheus pulled his hand away from my forehead. Percy, Talia said. What, what, what was that? I realized I was clammy with sweat. Prometheus nodded sympathetically. Appalling, isn't it? 
The gods know what is to come, and yet they do nothing, even for their children. How long did it take for them to tell you your prophecy, Percy Jackson? Don't you think your father knows what will happen to you? I was too stunned to answer. Percy, Grover warned, he's playing with your mind, trying to make you angry. Grover could read emotions, so he probably knew Prometheus was succeeding. Do you really blame your friend, Luke? The Titan asked me. And what about you, Percy? Will you be controlled by your fate? Kronos offers you a much better deal. I clenched my fists. As much as I hated what Prometheus had shown me, I hated Kronos a lot more. I'll give you a deal. Tell Kronos to call off his attack. Leave Luke Castellan's body. Return to the pitch of Tartarus. Then maybe I won't have to destroy him. The Imposa snarled. Her hair erupted into flames, but Prometheus just sighed. If you change your mind, he said, I have a gift for you. A Greek vase appeared on the table. It was about three feet high and a foot wide, glazed with black and white geometric designs. The ceramic lid was fastened with a leather harness. Grover whimpered when he saw it. Talia gasped. That's not... Yes, Prometheus said. You recognize it. Looking at the jar, I felt a strange sense of fear but I had no idea why. This belonged to my sister-in-law, Prometheus explained. Pandora. A lump formed in my throat. As in Pandora's box? Prometheus shook his head. I don't know how this box business got started. It was never a box. It was a pithos, a storage jar. I suppose Pandora's Pithos doesn't have the same ring to it, but never mind that. Yes, she did open this jar, which contained most of the demons that now haunt mankind. Fear, death, hunger, sickness. Don't forget me, the Imposa purred. Indeed, Prometheus conceded. The first Imposa was also trapped in this jar, released by Pandora. But what I find curious about the story, Pandora always gets the blame. She is punished for being curious. The gods would have you believe that this is the lesson. Mankind should not explore. They should not ask questions. They should do what they're told. In truth, Percy, this jar was a trap designed by Zeus and the other gods. It was revenge on me and my entire family. My poor simple brother, Epimetheus, Epimetheus and his wife, Pandora. The gods knew she would open the jar. They were willing to punish the entire race of humanity along with us. 
I thought about my dream of Hades and Maria D'Angelo. Zeus had destroyed an entire hotel to eliminate two demigod children. Just to save his own skin, because he was scared of the prophecy. He'd killed an innocent woman and probably hadn't lost any sleep over it. Hades was no better. He wasn't powerful enough to take his revenge on Zeus, so he'd cursed the oracle, dooming a young girl to a horrible fate. And Hermes. Why had he abandoned Luke? Why hadn't he at least warned Luke or tried to raise him better so he wouldn't turn evil? Maybe Prometheus was toying with my mind. What if he's right? Part of me wondered. How are the gods any better than the Titans? Prometheus tapped the lid of Pandora's jar. Only one spirit remained inside when Pandora opened it. Hope, I said. Prometheus looked pleased. Very good, Percy. Elpis, the spirit of hope, would not abandon humanity. Hope does not leave without being given permission. She can only be released by a child of man. The titan slid the jar across the table. I give you this as a reminder of what the gods are like, he said. Keep Elpis if you wish. But if you decide you have seen enough destruction, enough futile suffering, then open the jar. Let Elpis go. Give up hope, and I will know that you are surrendering. I promise Kronos will be lenient. He will spare the survivors. I stared at the jar and got a very bad feeling. I figured Pandora had been completely ADHD, like me. I could never leave things alone. I didn't like temptation. What if this was my choice. Maybe the prophecy all came down to my keeping this jar closed or opening it. I don't want the thing, I growled. Too late, Prometheus said. The gift is given. It cannot be taken back. He stood. The impostor came forward and slipped her arm through his. Moraine, Prometheus called to the blue giant. We're leaving. Get your flag. Uh-oh, the giant said. We will see you soon, Percy Jackson, Prometheus promised. One way or another. Ethan Nakamura gave me one last hateful look. Then the truce party turned and strolled up the lane through Central Park, like it was just a regular sunny Sunday afternoon. There it is, folks. The end of our reading for the day. 
Now, Rowlett has had more interesting thoughts, and Fabriella has jumped in as well. Rowlett has said... Nico might turn on the Olympians now, because Zeus caused his mother's death. A very interesting thought. And certainly, I mean, if there was going to be this moment, if there was going to be some moment in Nico's life um, that would change him, I have to imagine this would be pretty significant. This moment when his mother died, he had never seen it before. He had been there, but... You know, we've talked about this before, talked about it a lot on Tuesdays um, as, you know, we're at, at the age he was, he was kind of that in that pre-sentience period. He, he's not going to remember anything beyond that point. He doesn't really understand what words mean. Maybe he, he might have even, you know, seen and, and sort of had, it might have registered with him what was happening with his mother. But even then, he doesn't, at that age, he doesn't have a concept that that's a permanent thing. So for all intents and purposes, this is his first time seeing his mother die. And now, you know, I think unlike before, unlike um, unlike most people, you know, anyone who has seen their, has seen a, uh, not even seen, but experienced the death of a, of a loved one, Nico is in a uniquely terrible situation because not only did he see it happen, but he's watching it happen and the reasons for it and understanding that with the context of all of the suffering that it caused throughout time. Throughout his life, he knows, right? He's watching this right now in a perspective that most people don't. I mean, nobody gets this. Nobody gets this perspective. He knows how much suffering this has caused in his life in a way that, you know, if, if he were to have, you know, if he were to lose someone right now in the future, maybe that would cause him suffering, but he doesn't know that yet. He doesn't know how much, he doesn't know how deeply. He doesn't know how challenging his life will be. Uh, uh, he, he didn't, but now he does. And now he's looking at this, knowing how challenging his life is going to be um, for that little kid that he's, you know, he's watching his what four-year-old self he knows how challenging life is going to be for that kid. He knows um, that that kid is going to lose his sister. He knows how much pain that kid is going to go through, you know, sort of finding his place. He knows that whatever Hades is in the vision, you know, however much Hades may care for for Maria and seem to care for the children, whoever that was, that's not who Hades is now. Yeah, roll it, roll it brings up a good point. Also, the Furies did erase their memories, yes. Um, if any moment is going to change somebody, I think that would probably be it. So if we're going to watch Nico turn, and boy, what do we know about... I mean, Bianca is even there to warn him. What do we know about Nico? It's that his fatal flaw is to hold grudges. What is there to do in a situation like this? What is there for Nico to do? I'm not even talking about Percy. The sort of I'm talking exclusively about the the sort of B story of this, not the A story, the sort of main story with you know Percy and and uh, the defense of the of the city. This B story of Nico 
trying to understand what happened to him. Where did he come from, essentially? What circumstances did he come from? Yeah, it was a heck of a read, Dahlia, certainly. I look forward to seeing what it is that that Nico, what, what conclusion Nico actually comes to. Because this whole book, we have had this ongoing theme of um, what to do with a broken system. Do you tear it all down? Do you try to make change? Do you try to simply uh, survive as best you can within the system as it exists? Broken systems, what is there to do? There is a camp here of burn it all to the ground. Um, because, you know, as we've, as we, as we know about the Titans, these are not individuals of order. It's not like they're trying to bring in their own system of living. It is, I mean, it's chaos and death. This is not a, this is not a, like, uh, a point of confusion or a point of ambiguity. It's not like they're coming in offering like, no, this will be a utopia for everyone. It's not like they're going to, they're, they're not here to fix the problem created by the gods. They're here to just tear it down. And I've said it so many times before, that's no way to live, right? There, you can't make progress or you can't build anything on the idea of just removing something else. You have to have an idea of what you want in its place. I think that's true in any facet and any scale of life. You can't live away from something. You have to live towards something. Um, otherwise, all you can do is tear down. The Titans aren't really offering anything to build. And offering a better way. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people. And I mean, I, I've, I've, I've had moments in my life where I've just been like, I don't know what I want. I just know it's not this. Or I don't know what I want to be, but it's just not this. I don't know what I want to do, but it's just not this. It's a very tempting and sort of like sneaky little thing because oftentimes it sort of feels like you're making progress. The process of destruction can feel constructive sometimes. The process of, of destroying things, uh, of wrecking things, of, you know, uh, cutting things out. And sometimes those are to make way for something good, but sometimes they're just to wreck something that makes you angry or sad. And right now, there are things that are making Ethan Nakamura and Luke, even Annabeth and Percy, they're things that make them angry and sad. Um, all of these demigods that have gone over to the Titan side, um, these things that have made them angry and sad, they exist for a lot of people. This is not a, you know, this, this sort of dissatisfaction, um, this anger at uh, whatever parents might exist, uh, at the ways that these parents have handled things and that the systems that they have built... This is not an uncommon thing. This is not something that exists only in the world of the gods. This is a pretty ubiquitous temptation. Because I think that's what it is. It's just to, to wreck without a plan. Without any idea. And it doesn't need to be a complete plan. Um, I think there, there's, I mean, there's some great sort of like adages and metaphors and sayings about this. Um, you know, a, uh, a ship without a destination can find no favorable wind 
You know, if you're if you're just if you're not trying to build towards something, then you really won't. You can't get lucky or or find a, a lucky break because you don't have a direction that you're heading. You, even if a good wind came along, you wouldn't know it when you saw it. Um, similarly, like uh, I think there's there's a lot to say about like <laughs> how much how much fun destruction can be. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, all these sayings sort of boil down to this idea of it doesn't need to be a perfect plan. Uh, it doesn't need to be uh, something that you have, you know, considered every possible angle. You don't need to be a daughter of Athena to to put this together. But something promising. Uh, because, hey, even if you change port, uh, even if you change your destination, um, your ship maybe your ship still spend a lot of time coasting on these favorable winds uh, and taking you in a good direction, even if it's not the direction that you eventually land on. So, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think utopia is probably never the answer. I think we've, humans have lived long enough to know this and uh boy we're gonna we're gonna certainly find our way there with hunger games aren't we we're gonna be talking a lot about utopia and dystopia for sure uh on thursdays starting in uh january 2022 i'm pretty excited for it as is roll it um but yeah folks